so finally, my brothers, sounds like a bit of a wrap-up, doesn't it? Uh, but we're only halfway through the letter, so um, I'll leave someone at a later date to kind of really wrap up the, the service, but just uh, the series. But just in case you think this is a very short series, I'm not wrapping up today. This finally is not the last in the series on true joy. And I have to say, I had the real privilege this week of listening to the sermons that have preceded uh, this one and have been really helped and blessed by them. So thank you to uh, Andy and to Mike. But we're looking in this passage about confidence. I want to ask you, where are you placing your confidence? You see, there are lots of people at the moment who seem to be quite confident that they know a certain football team is going to win the World Cup. I have a general rule with my congregation that, that, that I'm uh, with that I love football, but I try not to make too many football analogies, except when it's the World Cup. I have free reign for about two weeks in four years to make football comparisons, just because it's culturally appropriate at that point. Anyway, um, you know, people are very confident, aren't they? Um, who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Any suggestions? Hmm, I was thinking that one, Germany. Um, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> they just scraped through, didn't they, yesterday? Anyway, we're not going to talk about football. But people seem to be confident about the team they're going to win, or someone who has just fallen in love for the first time, and they say, they are the one. That's it. I've met the one. I'm confident that they're going to make me happy. People have confidence. They place in things. Maybe it's their stocks or shares. Maybe it's the value of their house. We're thinking this afternoon about where we're placing our confidence. The, the uh, passage begins, if you have it in front of you, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And I just want to speak before going into this theme of confidence, thinking briefly about this theme of joy and remind us where we've got to up until this point. Because as I've been listening to, to Andy talking earlier on in the series, he was talking about the fact that true joy, the secret of true, true joy is, does anyone remember? It's a little test to maybe how, how you've... Uh, whether you've been listening, the secret to true joy is forgetting about yourself because your life is all about Jesus. That's what we've been looking at here, or rather you've been looking at over the last few weeks, forgetting about yourself because you're so full of Jesus. That's the secret of true joy. But it's not actually, I discover it's not actually about me, about my wants, my needs, my rights, my success, my fame, I just love Jesus. I love him. And therefore, my life is about him. That's a secret of true joy. Paul now comes to a part in the letter where he's now warning. He has to give a warning. He, is the letter so far, would you say, given the sense of the letter, it's a, a kind of angry letter or is it quite a, a buoyant, upbeat, joyful letter? Would, you, would it be true to say up, up until now it's been quite joyful? He's, he's rejoicing in them, isn't he? Feel free to participate in this, by the way. Um, he's rejoicing in who they are. He, he's affirming their love. He, he's confident that the one who began a good work in them will complete it, continue it, till the day of Jesus Christ. It's warm. But at this point, he's having to just put up a warning sign. Now, um, has anyone ever seen a sign saying, beware of the dogs? Uh, I had a paper round when I was a kid. And uh, I spent my life fearing dogs as a child. Um, at age 11, I went on a paper round, and there were these little yapping things called Yorkshire Terriers, or as I came afterwards to call them, Yorkshire Terrorists, because they would literally hide behind a gate, and as I came down the drive each time, 
It's almost like the owner just went hee 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 and opened the door and out they ran and were nipping at my ankles. And, and I was petrified so much so that after a few days of this, I cycled back home in the middle of my paper round and asked my dad to come with me because I was petrified and, and, and it was just a nightmare. So I spent my childhood scared of dogs. Um, I managed to get over that fear by, about, fear by about the age of 18 when I got bit by a dog in the face um, on the lip. I had eight stitches. Uh, thankfully, that didn't deter me and now I'm fine with dogs. We have two cats. Uh, we love them, and I'm, I don't mind dogs. Well, most of them. Uh, now, I, I thought that was a pretty good story until I was speaking to Dave Dexter, and he did a post round, is that right? And um, a dog bit Dave on his post round. Not only bit him, but not, he wasn't even in the house. He was the other side of the fence, and this Alsatian came over and, and bit you on the arm. So do you fear dogs now? No. Impressive. So, um, beware of the dog is our thought from verse 2. Can you see where it says there? Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if anyone's just fallen asleep, I really did say what I just said. Because if you can imagine this letter being read out to the people in Philippi, if someone was kind of falling asleep on a warm summer's day at the back of the church and they heard this read, they'd probably go, what was that? You know, kind of, did you just say beware of the dogs? Beware of the mutilators of the flesh? That's not very pleasant to put in a letter. So Paul is really trying to make a point. He says here, before he mentioned this, verse 1, to write the same things to you, the end of verse 1, is no trouble to me, but it is safe for you. Paul is concerned about the safety of the Philippians. He's concerned about their safety. He's, this is a safeguard for them. And so this is what he's warning them about, a group of people who are described as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Let's think about each of those briefly together and a bit of participation, if that's okay. Can you think of it anywhere in the Bible that talks about dogs? Lazarus? Yeah, what, what was that? Oh, yes, that Lazarus. I was thinking of the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm thinking, I can't think of a bit there, but that's right. The other Lazarus, there's two Lazaruses in the Bible. They licked his sores, which, how would have a Jew responded to that? When Jesus painted this picture, how would have a Jew responded to that? It's like disgusting, I mean, all of us would, but particularly Jews. Any other references to dogs in the Bible? Yeah, a dog returns to its own vomit, making it a really disgusting creature. I mean, that's, that's what Jews thought of dogs. Any other references to dogs in the Bible? Delilah. Oh, I'm trying to think of that one. What, what happened there? Oh, Jezebel. Jezebel, yes, yes. We knew what you meant. Jezebel, yeah. They, they, they licked her blood. Again, dogs were, peop- uh, were people. No, dogs were animals that licked the blood. They were unclean. So that you get the idea that when Paul is talking about a group of people who are like dogs, he's not being complimentary. You see, we like dogs as pets. We're kind of cool with dogs. That might be a compliment. If someone said, oh, you're just like a border collie, I'd be, oh, thanks. In, in those days, it was an insult, utterly an insult to be called a dog. What else is he saying about these people? Well, he calls them evildoers, and literally the word is a laborer. It can be translated positively or negatively. So a laborer is worthy of its hire. It's the same word. Basically, he's making the point that this person is not only a dog, but they're a, a worker, someone who's working for wages, someone who's earning. And the third thing he describes in verse 3 is someone who is a mutilator 
of the flesh. Someone who mutilates the flesh. And I will explain why he calls them that in a moment. But you can get the idea that this is not a compliment. Paul is really warning the church. Watch out. Beware of the dogs. He then says something in verse 3, which if Bert at the back of the church had fallen asleep again, would again wake up with a start. Because he says this, verse 3, but we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. Now, why would that make someone in that context jump up? Well, if they had been tracking with the the Jew-Gentile relationship, Jews are the circumcision, Gentiles, non-Jews, are the uncircumcision. But Paul is writing to a group of people in Philippi who are not described as Gentiles, as the uncircumcision. He says, you are the circumcision. In other words, like Jews, you are the circumcision. And so for someone like Lydia, who was in the church in Philippi, or the Philippian jailer, we never found out his name, that would have been staggering. We are the circumcision. What, What does he mean? Let me explain a bit more. You see, the Jews, as a sign of being a Jew, the males would be circumcised. That was a sign of being a Jew. It became known as that covenant. So it was a sign of the covenant. Therefore, if a Jew was a true Jew, they would have to be circumcised as a male. That was the sign. And yet, there were Jews coming in to the churches that Paul had planted, and they were professing to know Jesus Christ, and yet they were saying, by the way, In order as a Gentile and non-Jew to know Jesus, you need to also be circumcised. You need to keep the law if you're a male. You need to follow the Jewish rites. Paul is absolutely clear. He's saying to the Gentile church, you are already the circumcision. In other words, you are already in the covenant. You are already a part of God's family. You are already complete in Christ. There's nothing extra you need. Now for us, as mostly Gentiles, if not all Gentiles here, that's an encouragement, isn't it? We are complete in Christ. There's nothing extra we need. That's what Paul is saying. And look at the features of someone who is a part of the circumcision. Can you see the three features there in verse 3? Those who firstly worship by the Spirit of God. Someone who has a personal relationship with God and his spirit has come to make his home in their hearts. And because the spirit is alive within their heart, because they've received Jesus Christ, they're able to worship God. Now, there will be two kinds of worshipers here today. And and worship isn't just singing, but it's an aspect of our worship. It's gathered sung worship. There will be people here perhaps this afternoon, who are worshiping in the Spirit of God, rejoicing the truths that are up on the screen. They're saying, yes, I I agree. I love Jesus. That's why I'm here. There might be some people here this afternoon. I don't know the advantage of a visiting preacher. I I don't know your hearts. There might be some here who more enjoy this, the connection, but don't necessarily yet worship in the Spirit. They haven't got the Spirit in their hearts. And, And the invitation today is, You can. You can come to faith in Jesus. You can come into a relationship with him and and have his spirit come to make his home in your hearts. But those who are of the circumcision, what Paul is saying is, it's it's not those who have an outward sign. It's those who have the spirit of God in their hearts. Secondly, those who glory in Jesus. Another sign of having being a part of the circumcision is that you glory in Jesus. You boast in Jesus. That's what that word glory is, to boast. A third one here in verse 3 is that you put no confidence 
in the flesh. It's not so much what a person does as much as what they don't do. We do not put confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. It's tempting to think coming to church here is a little tick in the box. Yes, I've done my bit for Jesus now. I can live the rest of my life how I please because I've done my church bit. People live like that. People in our land live like that. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in Christ. So where are you placing your confidence this afternoon? Where are you placing your confidence? I'm aware it's a warm day, and if you're feeling sleepy, I won't be at all uh, offended if you kind of walk around and stand at the back. If you need to get some air, that's fine. Don't be uh, embarrassed to do that. It's the hottest day of the year so far, perhaps. Um, So... Maybe there's now an objection for me. So imagine we're sitting here in the church uh, in Philippi, and we've just had the letter read out. But the trouble is there are some in the church who are starting to think now. That's, that's great you saying that, Paul, but my friend here who came over from Israel a few months ago has been teaching me other things. And the trouble is they're a really good person. They, keep, they seem to keep the law really well, and they're very upstanding and upright. And, and I look at my life, and I haven't got much to offer, and I feel like a rubbish Christian. And yet this person that came over from Israel a few weeks ago, who's kind of saying the stuff that you're warning us against, he's really good. He's really impressive. It's really hard not to look at him and go, wow, that's cool. I wish I was like that. And so maybe as Paul's writing, he's thinking that this might be an objection. So Paul now brings his own CV into the frame. Paul is not boasting, but what he is doing is making a good point. Look at verse 4 with us, if you, if you have your Bibles there. Look at verse 4. I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what he does now, let's imagine it's a family photo album, just to, to help us see what's happening. Just imagine Paul picking up a family photo album. Let me show you a few pictures. The first one, flip page one. The first picture is of him Eight days old, just coming out of the temple in Jerusalem, having been circumcised. He's a crying baby. You would be, wouldn't you? And he's there with the photo. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's a good start. Secondly, the second snap is of him with the whole family uh, and wider friends of the community of Israel. He's showing that he's of of the family of Israel. This is my heritage. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I know what it means to live as a Jew. Thirdly, the third snap, flip the page again, and you'll see him holding his family tree. There's Paul holding up his family tree in the photo. He's very proud of his family tree. Which tribe is he from? What does it say in the, in the um, passage there, if you've got it open in front of you? Which tribe? Benjamin. Um, why, why is he proud of being a Benjamite? It's interesting, I've just been doing in my latest read-through through Nehemiah, and I noticed that the tribe of Judah and Benjamin are the ones that are mentioned in Nehemiah. Why? Because they were the two tribes that were the tribe of Judah, who stayed faithful to God longer than the tribes of Israel. It seems there was a bit more kudos being an, a, someone from Judah or Benjamin. You kind of had a bit more status. And so he was of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, one of the ones that was a bit more faithful than most Next snap, he flips the page of his family album again, and it's him holding his doctorate because he, as well as being a Hebrew of the Hebrew, was, was, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul, he doesn't say it here, but he was trained under one of the best. It was like he was an Oxford or Cambridge first student. He just got the best degree under the best teacher. Next photo, 
is him, well, this is a bit of an awkward photo, really. Well, it would be now for him, but it's of him standing in the midst of uh, uh, the killings of a load of Christians in a local city. He's not proud of that photo, but it's there in his album, I used to be a Christian killer. I used to be passionate about destroying the church. Here am I. Paul is honest about his zeal. He was persecuting the church. The final photo, perhaps, would be him with just a whole weight of all his achievements next to him. Everything he's done, been, said, as to righteousness, under the law, I was blameless. He was like a golden kid of the Jews. He was the top notch. And again, just to, if I can use a, an analogy from football, um, is Ronaldo. Now, many of us, I don't know what your impression is if you follow football, but for a long time have considered him to be quite arrogant, and many people do. And yet, I read something a, a couple of years ago about his dedication to his sport. When you look at Ronaldo, you don't just see the person on the pitch with a natural talent. You also see someone who has spent hours and hours perfecting his craft. When It's reported that when everyone else went home day after day after training at Man United and the other places he was, he would stay behind afterwards and practice his free kicks, practice his free kicks, practice, practice, practice. Now, I'm not a Man U fan like some people in this church, but I respect someone who really works at their craft. And Ronaldo apparently has also been in recent years a great role model to younger footballers in the team. He stood out as someone who's really helped them. Now, the reason I'm mentioning him suddenly is that that kind of reminds me of Paul, someone who was the best of the best, not simply because he was naturally talented, but also because he was a hard worker, and he gained a lot of respect, and he was proud of what he was. And yet now things have changed. Look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now he builds on this. Have a look as we continue reading. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he continues on this theme of loss. For the sake I've suffered uh, the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, literally dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's building a picture of his loss. We like to tend to gather around the things that we've earned and gained, don't we? We like to think about the things that are great in our lives. We like to amass family photo albums, don't we? Thinking of photo, photo albums. Do you have any photo albums that just have pictures of all your low moments in life? Do you have any photo albums where everything rubbish that you did and all the bad stuff that you thought, you just kind of somehow managed to represent it in an album? We don't, do we? we? We tend to kind of gather together all the happy memories, all the good things, and we put them together as memories. And that's quite understandable. But Paul is literally getting everything that he had and chucking it on the fire, as it were, and saying it's nothing because I counted it lost. Now, three, three things in this, briefly. Firstly, Whatever was gain, I counted loss. And I think Paul's now speaking at the time when he met Jesus. Do you remember that day on the Damascus Road where the light shone on him and he was like, I've met Jesus for the first time. He, at that point, he reckoned everything that had gone before him as loss, complete loss, as he puts his trust in Christ on that day. So that was the first thing. Anything I considered gain, I counted loss. The second thing is this. And now, anything that is gain, I count as loss. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything. It's an ongoing thing. You see, as Christians, if we're not careful, we can completely 
agree with the idea that by faith I'm saved. But what we end up doing, which is what I did for many years, was by faith I'm saved, but by my life I prove that I love God for, for the rest of my days on earth. I have to make it up to him somehow. That was my attitude about life. I've trusted Jesus as Savior. I've given all to him. I surrender all. Now I've just got to work hard because he's probably going to be normally disappointed with me because I haven't done enough and I must try harder. Paul says, no, now I count everything but loss. Paul could list a whole set of stuff he's done, gone on mission trips, planted churches, seen hundreds of people saved, been whipped for the sake of Jesus, shipwrecked for the sake of Jesus. There are so many things Jesus could claim, uh, sorry, Paul could claim as things that were credit to him, but he says nothing, nothing. Everything I continue to do, I count as loss. Thirdly and finally, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. For Paul, it really was suffering. He knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to have to live a life of singleness in the sense that he went on the road for Jesus. My, my life lived for Jesus. I'm foregoing the right I have. I'm living my life for him. He knew what it was like to have people chuck him out of synagogues and badmouth him, for false teachers to follow him and stir up trouble and undo the work that he had begun. He knew what it was like for both Jew and Gentile to persecute him. He knew what it was like to have trainees abandon him when he poured so much into their life and then they just walked away. That happened on more than one occasion. He was beaten. He struggled with anxiety for the churches. He had what was described as a thorn on the flesh. Paul knew what it was like to suffer, but he counted it worthy. And so as we move towards the end of this message this afternoon, there are two things that make it worth it all for Paul. Let's ask the question, why did Paul place all his confidence in Christ? In other words, why was Paul fully joyful in Christ? What was, where was Paul's joy? Two things that we see. He had gained Christ, and he came more to know Christ. We can see them both there. and You see uh, in verse uh, 9, or just before, at the end of verse 8, sorry, being found... In him, or rather, in order, sorry, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That was the first thing, gaining Christ. And then secondly, knowing Christ. Let's think about those two things briefly as we close. Firstly, in order that I may gain Christ, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. See, Paul came to know that Christ was worth it all. That everything he needed was in Christ. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, Mike was talking about the humility of Christ? That Christ came down from heaven and became a man. But did it stop there? Do you remember what Christ did? He didn't just stay a man. He became a man who was a servant. He came to serve. And it doesn't just stop there, does it? Because it wasn't just that he was a man who served, but he was the the God-man who served and became obedient to death, the death of the cross. See, Christ's direction of his humility was downwards. He came to give himself for us. And this is what Paul wants to gain. He wants to gain this Christ, the beauty, the humility, the righteousness that comes from God expressed in his son, Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean to gain Christ? It means to put your whole life in his hands. I wonder, have you done that this afternoon? Are you at a point in your life where you have given all to him? That's really what the word repent means. Repent just means to turn away from the life that has no future, a life that was me and was all about my self-love. And I think Andy put it so well a couple of weeks ago that for me to live is me and to die is the end. And it's to say goodbye to that life because it leads nowhere and to put your all, your whole trust, your confidence in Christ, what he has done and who he is and having a personal relationship with him. That's what it means to gain Christ, a righteousness that comes from God by faith. All we have to do is to surrender, to put our hands up and say, I've got nothing of myself. It's to you, Christ. I entrust myself to you. I forget myself. I want to be full of you. If we were to think of a relationship that best defines that in this life, it would be that relationship between a, a husband and a wife where they, on that day of the wedding, they are joined together. They become one. They gain each other. But wouldn't it be sad in a relationship like a marriage? And I've heard this happen. I've never heard it happen where a lady has done this to a man. It may have done. But I've certainly heard it of where men have done this to ladies, where they've acted all charming and all in love before the wedding day. And they've, they've won the lady's heart and they've wined and dined them and they've just, you know, kind of in, really let them know they feel they're special until the day of the wedding. And then something happens after that day of the wedding. And sometimes it's sad, but it's happened where a guy has then lost interest. Would you agree that that would be a sad thing to happen? It would be, wouldn't it? They were not created to join together in marriage only for one of them just to turn away and say, oh, that's it, I've got my prize now, I don't need anything more. Um, a silly illustration has come to mind, but the, the, the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, an old musical, and the oldest brother who's already married, they say, come on, let's go a-courting, this old uh, fashion expression, expression. He says to them, I don't need to go a-courting, I've already got a wife. And, and his wife was kind of, you could see this look on her face, she he didn't want to spend time with her because he'd already got her. And he was missing the point. And by the end of the film, his heart is turned towards her again. And this is what Paul's saying here. Not just gaining Christ, but have a look further down. It says, verse 10, that I also may know him. That I may know Christ. This is what it means, as Andy said last week in the outworking of our faith. Work out your salvation. That doesn't mean I've got to work as hard as I can to get God to love me. It's, it's outworking. It's the pouring out of a knowing of Jesus. It's getting to know him and enjoy him and become like him. And this is what Paul is saying here. Knowing Christ. Two things just to, to, to show from this. The power of his resurrection. What does that mean? The power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, he says it, if you want perhaps a to lift off this page and understand that. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 because he says that the same power that was at work in Christ when he raised him from the dead is the same power at work in you. Isn't that encouraging to know that when we are living our Christian lives, we're, we're not given just a bit of God or a, a half measure of the Spirit. All that was in Christ when Christ was risen from the dead, all the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Christ 
is available to us. God has not shortchanged us. He's not given us less than what he has given his son. In him we have everything we, we need. So that's the power of his resurrection. It doesn't mean it's on tap. His power is not like a thing that we kind of just order on demand. It means he is able and we never need to doubt it. Are you praying for someone at the moment who doesn't yet know Jesus as their savior? Is there someone in your life? Someone that you're longing for, maybe in your family, neighbors, school, friendship group. I don't know why they haven't come to faith yet. There are people that we're praying for and we just long for them to come to faith. But never doubt that God's power is at work through you in his time. doesn't mean they will be saved in your lifetime or, or at all. We don't know. But his power is available to you. He is, it's not because of God's lack of power. He is able. And we can have confidence in that. Are you overcome sometimes by the battle with anxiety or depression? Struggling with lowness? Struggling to rejoice as you're, we are called to do in this passage? I don't know how long that trial will last. I know I've been through it myself and it takes time sometimes. But never doubt the power of God at work to help you. Never doubt that he is able and that he is holding you. So his, the power of his resurrection is at work in us. Secondly, the, the sharing of his sufferings. Paul says that to have Christ is to have all of him. All the joy and the wonder of knowing him. But it's also the reality that as Christ suffered, so he calls us to suffer. And there are going to be times in our life when we will suffer for being a Christian. It may be the suffering of the frailty of the flesh. It may be the suffering of being faithful in a relationship and the other person turns against you. It might be the suffering of persecution for being a Christian in this country or another. But that is to be a part of Jesus. Look at the outcome of that suffering. What does he say? He says here, to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I love Paul's heart because what Paul is saying is, whatever it takes, I want to become more like Jesus. And if it means being a part of his sufferings, if that's what it means to be more like Jesus, I want him. I want everything in him. The Christian life is a call to joy because we forget about ourselves because we're so full of Jesus. And so Paul concludes in verse 11, if by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I was wrestling with this because it sounds like Paul is not quite sure. You could read it one way and think Paul's saying, if, if, if at any means possible I might be saved, you know, if, like he's not sure. I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. He's not saying if, I do as much as possible so I can, might be saved. He's not saying that. He's saying, whatever it takes, Lord, to make me more like Jesus, I'm in. I so love Jesus. I so love him. I'm so full of him that whatever it takes, Lord, I'm in. I'm in. You give me a, a path one day that's relatively full of ease. Thank you, Jesus. I praise you. If this day's path is marked with suffering because I'm faithful to you, then I'm in. All I want to be is more like the one I love. I want to be like Jesus. True joy happens when we forget about ourselves and when we put instead our trust in Jesus. We're so full of him. And my prayer for myself, and, and maybe we could pray for one another this week, is that we would continually live lives which are full of Jesus. Should we pray to that end now? Should we bow? Uh, Father, um, as, we, as we look at these words together, um, Lord, it, 
we, we recognize that it's so easy to make our lives about us. It's so easy to have confidence in the flesh. It's so easy, even in a church context, to place our trust in who we are and what we've got to offer. Lord, we do want to be a blessing to one another. We want to pour out the way you pour out on us. But Lord, please help us never to put our confidence in this. Help us, Lord, just to be full of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be those that forget ourselves because we love you and we have a view here of how wonderful Jesus is. So we entrust ourselves to you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.